This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody, welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. In this program, uh, it's our second installment as we're tackling claims made in the cessationist documentary. It's going to be an exciting program. You guys stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a show where we tackle history, theology, and the gifts of the Spirit. My name is Joshua Lewis. I'm the pastor of King's Fellowship in Ada, Oklahoma, together with my friends Michael Miller at Reclamation Church Denver and Michael Roundtree at Bridgeway Church OKC. We set aside time every week to discuss the gifts of the Spirit. Things like, how should we pray for the sick? And how do we interpret tongues? And should we believe all the prophetic words for the new year? If you're looking for a charismatic podcast with practitioners who are actually doing the stuff, this is the show for you. We've got a great program for you guys today as we dive into the subject of the cessationist documentary. I want to remind you that Remnant Radio is entirely crowdfunded, so if you want to support the channel, there are links in the description to do so. You can do a one-time link there uh, on PayPal, give a one-time gift, or if you give on Patreon, you get access to extra content. Uh, One of the things that we are trying to produce here on the show as we're diving into responding to the cessationist uh, uh, documentary is that we're trying to collect a ton of source material. So if you hear us making a statement like, well, this Bible verse is written in this uh, specific time frame, or uh, these church fathers said this about this issue. Uh, we're collecting all of that into a document. So uh, as of right now, we have we have scoped out the first 18 minutes of this documentary, and we have 22 pages of content and source material. If that's something that you're interested in, there's also a link in the description for the newsletter. I would encourage you to sign up for that newsletter because we will be releasing all of this documentation uh, to our viewers who are subscribed to that list because we want to make sure that you're able to take this material and use it uh, for training purposes. If you're a pastor and you want to preach through it and you want to just catch all of our references and have quotes from Sam Storms and D.A. Carson and Wayne Grudem and Craig Keener, uh, church fathers such as, you know, Irenaeus, you know, uh, St. Augustine and so forth and so on. We have tons of that content collected for you in one place so you don't have to go anywhere. So I would encourage you make sure to subscribe to that newsletter so you get that piece of content when it comes out. Without further ado, let me introduce you to the fellows. Michael, Roundtree, anything that you want to uh, make the audience aware of as we're diving into this episode? <laughs> no, I, I'm good. I think I just want to make us aware that cessationism is uh, untrue. So uh, that's really it. We'll spend the whole episode on that one. Miller, what about you? What do you want us to be aware of? Oh, actually, I got something for you guys. Um, Miller, is you know he's been in the basement for all this time. Like that first episode... I, I called him Basement Boy and it just stuck. You guys loved it. People like meet him in public and they're like, oh, you're Basement Boy. He's like, I have a name. And well, Miller is actually graduating to an attic, uh, interestingly enough. So Miller, can you tell us a little bit about that? I don't know. Was that actually just, graduation? It's an I, upper room. It's still in the works. <laughs> this is still in the works. Okay. okay. Uh, yeah, there's. I've got uh, hopefully an office at the church, which but it is definitely not uh could it be your normal it's not like roundtree over there living the life of luxury 
Oh, oh, uh, look at me with all my fancy in a full space office. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. In a a third bedroom that's doubled as an office space. Just a life of luxury over there. He's got a whole room. He's got AC vents pumping in air. Oh my gosh. Yeah, ceiling fans. I mean, it's crazy what he's he's experiencing. They're in in Ada. They're just giving real estate away to get people to. (laughs) They're like, please come and move here. Yeah, the space is so cheap. It's like the land run is still going there. That's right. (laughs) Come on, guys. All right. So we should should jump in. We're doing part two of this cessationist documentary, which we will get. Five, um, I don't know, three or four more clips in today. We'll kind of see how it goes. We'll probably go a little longer than our typical one hour. Uh, but man, this one's uh, got a lot of traction. And so e- excited to jump in. Uh, Josh, I don't know if you want to just start us out with the, uh, actually, even before you do, I do want to say this. And uh, I, I think we hit like a right tone in the, in the, last, uh, the last episode and want to hit that tone again that we consider... Uh, if you're out there watching us and you're a cessationist, we consider you a brother or a sister. We love you, and uh, and we consider ourselves all together one in Christ, part of the same family. And so we we definitely think cessationism is dangerous and unbiblical. Uh, and so we're gonna you know treat the doctrine, but we're we're not going to uh, smear you as human beings and uh, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's going to be our approach. And uh, hopefully we can see the same thing going on on both sides as you guys do your own responses and so on. So uh, I think that's a good uh, good way to top it off. Josh, uh, anything else you want to add before we start out with clip number one? No, I think I think uh, this is already, you know, last week, I think uh, Miller talked to uh, one of the folks over there at the cessationist documentary that was working on that project, had another guy reach out to me this week, different individual, uh, having fun with the, the posts that he, you know, he did a quotation of me from the last video on, you know, great cinematography, great, uh, uh, so, you know, effects, special effects, great sets. Uh, fantastic in its quality. Yeah. He just took that, that quote and started funny. promoting the, the documentary <laughs> with my quotation. I yeah. thought it was hysterical. I thought it was actually real tasteful, real playful. Uh, and I just, I thought it was funny because I'm, I'm like, hey man, it's all fair. You know, like I, I've got a photo of me and Michael and Michael burning your logo. So I think, I think it was, <laughs> yeah. it was fun slapstick. Uh, I think we were not taking ourselves too seriously. I hope to Michael's point that we can treat each other like Christian brothers and have, have a little bit of fun as we're doing some of these responses. Now we mean it. Now we don't take ourselves seriously, but we do take theology seriously. We do take the gifts of the spirit seriously. We do want to take God seriously. And as we're engaging with this, we want to have a charitable spirit while at the same time holding fast to saying, Hey, the gifts of the spirit active in the church today is the right biblical interpretation. It's not one of many, it's the right one. Uh, And we believe that. And that's why we're doing these responses. Do you guys want to dive into number one? Yeah. Yeah, 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 let's do it. To be a legal proxy for Jesus, to be a true apostle, four things had to be true. You had to be handpicked, chosen by Christ. You had to be taught by Christ. You had to witness the resurrected Christ. You had to see him risen. The fourth qualification is found with the 11 in Matthew 10, when Jesus said, I'm sending you out to represent me and I'm going to give you the power to work miracles, to confirm the revelation that's going to come through you. Well, it's quick, it's short, and to the, uh, to the point, uh, four criteria to become an apostle, what say you? Oh, well, I mean, for one, it's another conflating of, of just the word apostle and how it's used. Uh, because 
continuationists have really no disagreement with cessationists that the 12 apostles of Jesus were unique, of course, minus Judas plus Matthias. And so uh, we definitely agree that the 12 have uh, a special place in history. They're called the 12 uh, in the book of Acts in 1 Corinthians 15. But take 1 Corinthians 15, where Jesus appeared to, quote, the 12 and then to the apostles. So there were apostles in addition to the 12. We talked about this last time, Revelation 21, I believe it's verse 14. The 12 have their names inscribed on the foundation stones of the new Jerusalem. And the argument that he seems to be making is that the miracles testified to the gospel preached by these original, call them capital A apostles, whose names are inscribed on the foundation stones of new Jerusalem. Uh, But multiple multiple problems with this, but uh, but one of them uh, I, I've begun to touch on already. There were other apostles, Acts 14, 14, Paul and Barnabas are apostles, uh, Acts 15, 22, 16, 19 and following, 1 Thessalonians 2, 4 through 7, uh, Silas or Silvanus also appears to be referred to as an apostle. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, is called an apostle in Galatians 1, 19, and 2 Corinthians 8, 23, uh, refers to apostles to the churches, and uh, most of your translations will render it uh, messengers to the churches. So uh, here at the Render Radio, we believe that apostles are missionaries. They are sent ones. And uh, and so I, I think there's another conflating of terms and then trying to pack all the miracles into these uh, cap, capital A apostles, into these unique 12. Uh, and then, of course, lots of other people uh, who are not apostles in the scripture perform miracles, which we could also talk about. But yeah, uh, I, I want to give you guys a chance to talk. To that for a second, because these criteria that are given says, you know, you had to be handpicked and chosen by Christ. Um, if I were to just go through a couple of low-hanging fruit, was Barnabas chosen by Christ? Was Matthias chosen by Christ? I mean, it seems as if the disciples gathered together and cast lots to to decide that Matthias was going to be one of the the the, the disciples, one of the twelve apostles. Um, one of these qualifications that they had to learn directly from Jesus. What evidence do we have that Barnabas learned that? Now, you mentioned a couple of other disciples, but one of the guys that is named an apostle over and over and again in Scripture is Barnabas. So I think it would be really easy for us to take the criteria that he just gave and apply it to all references of apostle, and you'll find that there that that those categories fall short. And again, the reason Michael Roundtree is bringing this up is that there seems to be a categorical distinction between apostles of the Lamb or the 12, and other kinds of apostles, other missionaries, other sent ones, other individuals who are going out to spread that gospel and to lay the foundation of the church in regions where the gospel has not yet gone. So when I say foundational, I'm not meaning doctrine in scripture, but I mean laying kind of foundational, ecclesiological, doctrinal, theological works uh, in various regions. Uh, Miller, you want to jump in? Uh, I, the only thing I would just add to that is apostle just means church planter you telling me that God stopped giving the gift away to go and plant churches and be a missionary? I don't think so. Um, and again, when you look at that gift in particular, as it's mentioned in uh, Ephesians 4, it's tied, it's given out at the Lord's ascension. So it's tied to his ascension. And then the there's a timestamp on it for when that gift would cease. And it says, until we reach the measure of maturity that belongs to the fullness of Christ. So there's com- coming a point in time where when Jesus returns, where there will be a unity of the faith that's never existed. Um, it'll be, and, and if anything, this gift of apostleship is meant to bring about the equipping of the saints for the works of ministry so that we could become more unified. So there's a problem when you take away Ephesians four gifts and say that they do not exist today. 
you're actually taking away the gifts that were given to equip the body and to unify the church. Um, yeah, that's good. Hey, Roundtree, yeah. I, I, would you weigh in on Matthew 10? Because in this in this clip, he says, Matthew 10, when Jesus said, I'm sending out uh, uh, to, to represent me and I'm going to give you power to work miracles and to confirm the revelation that is going to come through you. So he's, he wants them to confirm. Is that in Matthew 10 there, Michael Roundtree? Uh, it's actually not. It's actually not. There's a really, uh, I mean, the flow of Matthew 10, first verse, it says, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. So yes, Jesus does give authority to his 12 right there. Now let's also keep in mind, he does the same thing in Luke 10, gives him power and authority in Luke 10, but it's not just to the 12, it's to the 72 and, and they're not called apostles. Now, that already tells you that like the the intention of this the writers of the synoptic gospels who are who all relay this story of of sending out sometimes it's the 12 sometimes it's the 72 uh, depending on which part you're reading it can't be that the intent of the author is to try to say hey uh miracle working is just for apostles uh and just for these 12 because more than the 12 get it um matthew's also doing something where in Matthew chapter 10, he gives his 12 authority, and then he sends them out to Israel. He says, preach only to Israel, not to the Gentiles. So he sends them only to Israel, and he sends them out to preach and cast out demons. Then in Matthew 28, Jesus rises from the dead, and he says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. So it seems like actually uh, an even higher level of authority. It's like him as the resurrected Christ who has conquered every principality and power uh, now commissions them. Uh, with this resurrection, resurrected Christ authority. And then he sends them not just to Israel, but to Gentiles. And uh, and he sends them not just to preach, but to make disciples. And so there's actually an escalation that Matthew's trying to get toward, that it's not as though Matthew 10 was the high watermark. No, Matthew 28 is the high watermark. And Matthew 28, I just want to ask, is the Great Commission still going? Uh, because it is. Jesus says, I'm even with you until the very end of the age to see that this is fulfilled. That high water mark is still with us. But there's more. There's more. Uh, the closest that I can get to, like in Matthew chapter 10 to what he's saying, is that he tells them to preach the kingdom is near, and then he commands them to heal and cast out demons. And, and what I would say is there's a big difference between, hey, Jesus sent the apostles out to work miracles on one hand. And on the other hand, Jesus appointed only the apostles to do miracles as a confirmation of their message. It says that nowhere. That's a reading into the text. And what I would contend is that this has much less to do with like confirming the apostles as trustworthy teachers of doctrine, as it's often articulated by cessationists. Uh, and it has much less to do with the mess uh, the messenger than the message, and the message the message is the gospel of the kingdom. And Jesus, Matthew 4 and Matthew 9, he went out and he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, that is the good news of God's reign, and then he demonstrated the good news of God's reign by healing the sick and casting out demons, because where Jesus reigns, demons don't. And then in Matthew 10, he commissions the disciples to do the same, proclamation and demonstration. Then if we want to fast forward uh, to Luke's second volume, the book of Acts, Acts 1.1 refers to Jesus, uh, the, the very first verse, it refers to the, all the things that Jesus began 
to do and teach. Jesus is the only religious leader whose ministry didn't end with his death. Jesus's ministry was only beginning. And, uh, and so what did he do, begin to do in his earthly ministry? To do and teach. Now, this formulation, the same thing we've been seeing, the proclamation and demonstration of the kingdom of God, uh, God reigns, let me show you, healing and miracles. That same thing continues through the ministry of the ascended Christ. So now that Christ is seated at the right hand of God, he continues to do and teach through his church. Again, do and teach. Same thing we see in Luke 24, uh, I think it's around 19 or so. Um, where uh, where Jesus is referred to as a prophet, mighty in word and deed. This was just a common formulation that a prophet would go about and do mighty works and deeds, mighty works and deeds. And he's commissioned his apostles to do that, but not just his apostles, because Jesus continues to be seated at the right hand of God the Father. And the whole message of the book of Acts, in fact, some commentators will say, maybe it shouldn't be called Acts of the Apostles, Maybe it should be called Acts of the Exalted Christ, because Jesus, from the right hand of God, through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, empowers his church to continue his prophetic task upon the earth, to be his mouthpiece on the earth, and to do signs and wonders, to do and teach. Jesus is still doing and teaching. Whatever you read about in his earthly ministry, the preaching, the signs and wonders, that was just the beginning. The continuation of that is in the book of Acts, not just through apostles, but through Philip, through Stephen, through Philip's four unnamed daughters, through Agabus, through many other miracle workers who were not apostles because it wasn't actually about them. It's about King Jesus continuing to operate through his church. So I think it's a complete misreading of Matthew chapter 10. The verse never says that. Uh, it never says that this was to confirm that they were apostles. And uh, it it's it's just a demonstration of the kingdom, which Jesus continues to demonstrate because Jesus is the king of kings reigning from the throne of his father, David. Yeah, so, and this is another reason, yeah. talking about sitting from the throne of his father, David, it'd be a nice place to insert a continuationist argument. Now, part of our argument is not that God gave just apostles these specific gifts. You wouldn't know this because this documentary doesn't engage with any of our arguments, but um, one of the arguments for the continuationist position is it's because Christ is seated at the right hand that he's actually endued all peoples with that gift. So if you think about Jesus coming on the scene as a king, as a prophet, and as a priest, um, as a king, he casts out demons, he pushes back the kingdom of darkness and conquers. You know, as a priest, he makes unclean things clean. He often does this, like the leper touches them, makes them clean. Uh, if, as a prophet, you know, tells the woman at the at the well, kind of, hey, you've been married a couple times before, uh, and the guy you're with right now is not your husband. He, he demonstrates kind of kingly, uh, prophetically in priestly ministries. And it was through his session in Ephesians 4, he was sent on high as he who gave gifts to men, some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, that he's extending his rule and reign. So mm -hmm. when uh, you know Peter writes of us that we are a holy nation and a royal priesthood, what does it mean to be holy, royal priesthoods? It means that we are finding our authorial identity when it comes to administering Christ's kingdom here on the earth. Why is it that prophecy is the gift that's being poured out on all flesh? Why specifically does Joel say that? Well, because the prophet has ascended on high and he is now reigning at the right hand and through the body, which is his church, he's administering his kingly and priestly and prophetic roles through the church. So the way that Christ is anointed to cast out demons, you and I are anointed to cast out demons. And the way that Christ was anointed as a prophet, you and I are anointed as his 
vice regents in the earth, uh, hearing from Christ, hearing through the work of the Spirit, which he has purchased on the cross for all people everywhere. So when you think in these terms, I just want you to remember, not only are we trying to, hey, cessationism is wrong. That's not a true statement. It's not a true category. Also remember the reason that these gifts are operating is because of Christ's session. And he wasn't just Uh seated in the first century. Ephesians 4 isn't just about the first century Christians. His session and distributing of gifts to his church is for all people everywhere at all times. This gift is not just for you in the first century. It's for all who are far off who believe. This gift is for everyone. So uh, how how many times do I have to beat that drum? Miller has raised his hand like he's in a class and he's like, please tag (laughs) me in. (laughs) Uh, Well, so Michael was making the main point that the power to work miracles was to confirm the revelation, not just the messenger and you know they'll try to make the argument that the the power to work miracles was so that you could affirm that these men were trustworthy teachers of doctrine it kind of goes back to the cluster argument you know you've got these these guys like moses these guys like elijah and elisha and then you've got the apostles but the again the point michael made earlier was that it wasn't just the apostles who were working miracles you've got the 72 who were sent out to heal the sick cleanse the lepers cast out demons uh raise the dead i mean you've got these reports coming back from the disciples, hey, we, we did these things in your name. Um, but the other thing about it that Michael was attaching to this is it, it, it wasn't just the messenger that was being affirmed. Primarily, it was the message itself that was being uh, affirmed. The message being that the kingdom of God is at hand, which just simply means the rule or reign of King Jesus is at hand. And so what does it look like for King Jesus to rule and reign? Well, it looks like demons getting cast out. It looks like the sick getting healed, lepers being cleansed, blind getting this, their sight, uh, the dead being raised. These are all normative things when God expresses his rule and his reign here on earth. So that message was being affirmed. And you look at Matthew 12, he actually takes it one step further. In Matthew 12, he casts out a demon out of a blind mute boy. And he says, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So the reign and rule of God has come upon you. So one of the ways that God continues to reign and rule to this day is these exact same kinds of healings and miracles. The message that was given is God's reign is at hand. And the way that we prove that message is by signs, wonders, and miracles. And Paul the Apostle will affirm this. You see in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he said, to the Corinthians, for I decided to be concerned about nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. And my conversation and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but rather with a demonstration of the Spirit. Get that proclamation, demonstration. So a demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith would not be based on human wisdom, but on the power of God. I don't know how else to say it, but the idea that the gifts wouldn't be accompanied today means to say on some level that you think you can preach the gospel better than Paul the Apostle. You think that you don't need the power of God to demonstrate the message of God. And I would tell you that your methodology is several steps behind that of the Apostle if you refuse to demonstrate the works of God alongside the proclamation uh, of the gospel of the kingdom of God. So those two things are hand in hand. That's part of the reason this is still continuing today, because we're still preaching the same gospel of God's reign and rule. It has come, and when you see a demon cast out, it's not just at hand, it's now come upon you. 
there's a progression. Right. Yeah, and and I would jump in too because I want to be fair to Tom Pennington who says this from Countryside Bible Church. I used to drive by Countryside Bible Church all the time from the same area, uh, and he does because I. You're right, Miller. I did go down the path of like, hey, it's not about confirming the messenger, and that is what a lot of cessationists will say that it was He's just not about saying confirming that the messenger. He technically says this. He says. Uh, the fourth qualification found in the 11 of Matthew 10 is when Jesus said, I'm sending you out to represent me, and I'm going to give you the power to work miracles to confirm the revelation that's going to come through you. Okay, so he kind of puts together both. It's like the revelation that comes through you. And uh, but, but here's what I think the, the problem is. Even though, rightly, he does fixate more on maybe the revelation there, uh, the problem is that he uses this as an argument for why like this is a fourth qualification of apostles that you work miracles like they did in matthew chapter 10 it still doesn't answer why in luke chapter 10 72 worked miracles by the way 72 what uh, jesus gives power and authority to them they go out and they work the miracles you know what 72 is the number of 12 was the number of tribes of israel 72 in the jewish mind was the number of nations so luke is actually trying to communicate and I believe Luke was a Gentile. Um, Luke was trying to communicate that, hey, this miracle working gospel is actually going out to all nations. Not to mention the fact that Jesus is discipling people in miracles shows that he's wanting these miracles to continue um, and uh, not just through the 12. So uh, anyway, but I, I do like that Pennington says, hey, it's confirming a revelation, but Jesus didn't limit that to the 12 apostles. He didn't define this as one of the fourth is the fourth qualifications for being an apostle. So both of those things we would uh, strongly disagree with. And finally, uh, I would say that we still need, and this is kind of to your point, Miller, that um, we, we still, as we're out preaching the gospel, like I had somebody saved in my church on Sunday as a result of a prophetic word delivered. In fact, he responded by saying, you just told me every conversation I've had for six months, gave his life to Jesus right then and there. The week before, we had somebody saved. Why? Because we just cast demons out of him. And as a result, he got saved. Um, it's been happening every week. We see miracles leading to salvation. So uh, the proclaiming and demonstrating are still meant to be paired together. Jesus is still doing and teaching. So I think that's what I would say. Hey, yeah, if you want to, I mean, I can read. I'm just going to go and do it because I started. Um, so the Shriners are two of my fav, fave scholars. Uh, Tom Shriner, the father, who is a cessationist. Patrick Shriner, I'm not sure whether he's a cessationist or not, but he's at a Baptist seminary. Um, so he wrote a wonderful book called The Ascension. We interviewed him about it. You can watch our interview. It's fantastic uh, with him. But uh, anyway, here's what he says. And... Uh, and man, Josh, I think this sounds just like what you were saying. He says, the church functions as the prophetic arm of Jesus through actions, doing signs and wonders. The prophet Joel promised that at the turn of the ages, at Christ's session, that's when he's seated at the right hand of God, wonders would be shown in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. As the apostles went out to spread Christ's prophetic word, they too performed signs and wonders. Throughout the New Testament, the church, so expands beyond apostles, is called not only to proclaim Christ, but to imitate Christ in his actions. And it seems that he's intimating there that, hey, this is this is supposed to be an ongoing thing beyond apostles to the end of the age. Um, I don't know that. I don't know whether he's a continuationist or not, but he's at least flirting with it because 
as one who studied deeply the ascension of Jesus and wrote a book about it, he couldn't help but identify, you know what? The church continues the prophetic ministry of Jesus, including signs and wonders, uh, because Jesus, the ascended Lord, operates through the church by the empowerment of the Spirit. So uh, so uh, those are a few arguments that uh, I think we would push back on Tom Pennington with. Josh, would you have any other kind of final thoughts on that before we jump to cl clip six? No, I, I do think... Just to set the record straight, I, I am pretty sure Patrick is a cessationist. I'm pretty sure at last time at ETS, I had to ask him. I was like, dude, I read that book, man. It, you look like you're kind of ghosty. Uh, and he's like, no, I'm a cessationist. And I was like, ah, oh, it's too bad. Anyway, um, somebody you know has asked in the comment section a couple times, you said cessationism is dangerous. When, when we define cessationism as being dangerous, the reason we've said that before, and we will continue to say that, is any teacher that is commanding you not to observe a portion of the scriptures, that's dangerous, right? So if I told you don't practice communion, if I was like a, uh, an anti-traditionalist and I was like, don't do communion, uh, and you were commanded to practice communion when we gather together, that would be dangerous. It would be dangerous for me to say, when you gather together, don't lift up holy hands worshiping God, because the, the scriptures command us to do that. So anyone walking around telling you, hey, don't follow the commands of scripture, um, I'm not saying that it's going to put you in danger of justification. Uh, I'm just saying that as you're aiming to please God and you're aiming to glorify him in the earth, we should obey his scriptures in order to do that, uh, in, in order not for our cor quorum, moon, or quorum Deo to be secured, but our quorum mundo, our righteousness before others in the world. Uh, it's, it's necessary to obey the commands of scripture. And if you're a cessationist, you're telling people, don't pursue uh, spiritual gifts and earnestly desire to prophesy. Don't do that. And we would say any kind of you know, teaching or tradition of man that would command you not to obey a command of scripture is dangerous. So um, in case people were wondering why we were saying that, that's that's the goal. You guys ready to move on to clip six? Yep. Let's do it. When Paul defends his apostleship in 2 Corinthians 12, he refers to these gifts as the signs of an apostle. Miraculous abilities that either the apostles alone had, or there were cases where they could lay hands on someone and give them those gifts. But always in the New Testament, when those miraculous gifts are manifest, it is in, in the presence of an apostle. There we go. Uh, the signs of an apostle um, that were done among you uh, here by Phil Johnson. Michael Miller, do you want to start us off on this one? Well, oh gosh. The, the tough thing is this, it, there's no verse of scripture that says that the signs of the apostles were only, or sorry, that miracle working was only signs for the apostles first off, because we've given examples just in the previous clip response of a number of uh, people that were working miracles that weren't apostles, such as the 72. Uh, but then secondarily, he says that it's only those who uh, the apostles laid their hands on. And I think here in just a little bit, we're going to give you a number of examples as well. But actually, let me let, let Michael Roundtree ju uh, jump in on the Sola Scriptura part. <laughs> no, you uh, don't want to? Okay. Oh, no. I. Everyone's getting caught up in that hard. live chat. It's hard to respond in the chat. So um, anyway, uh, Josh, why don't you jump in on the Sola Scriptura? Here, here's what I'll do. Since you guys are both consumed with the chat, uh, I'll just read this quote from uh, uh, the Apostle Sam Storms. I'm just kidding. Um, a closer look at the Greek, he's speaking of uh, uh, 
Second uh, Corinthians chapter twelve, because the the appeal that Phil Johnson is making is that the signs of an apostle were done among you. However, the way that that is being rendered, in particular in the NIV, is a little bit disingenuous. Um, Doctor Sam Storms writes his commentary uh, uh, in Understanding Spiritual Gifts: A Comprehensive Guide. He writes commentary on Second Corinthians chapter twelve and explains to us how the signs of an apostle are not miracles, uh, but they were attested by miracles. Uh, a close look at the Greek text can be helpful here. The words translated signs or marks uh, is the normative case as one would expect, but the term signs, wonders, and miracles are all three in the dative. Uh, this means, uh, contrary to what many have taught, that Paul did not say that the uh, signs of an apostle are the uh, insignia of an apostle are signs, wonders, and miracles. Rather, as the English Standard Version more accurately translates, he asserts that the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, uh, with or better still accompanied by signs, wonders, and mighty works. So here he's not saying uh, it was performed among you with uttermost patience, accompanied by signs, wonders, and mighty works. Not that the signs wonders and mighty works were the signs of an apostle. Those are conflating two things as if they are the same. And he's saying that the Greek language, in, in, in particular with the date of cases, makes this case very clear and very plain. To suggest otherwise, again, if you're going to do the textual legwork on this text, I think is disingenuous. The, the text is clearly saying that. It's not uh, suggesting that the signs of an apostle are signs, wonders, and miracles. You guys want to yeah. pick up after that? Sure. Well, it's just it's just not an argument from Scripture. the The idea that uh, the miracles and the signs were always performed with an apostle around. I mean, if if that was really true, then why was there why was there such disorder in Corinth? Um, <laughs> you know, there's disorder because Paul wasn't around. There wasn't an apostle to lay down the law. And Paul comes and he writes his letter. He lays down the law. And maybe they want to say, well, the apostle got it started, but then they got off track. I mean, what he literally says is when those miraculous gifts are manifest, it is in the presence of an apostle. It's simply not true. Uh, Stephen's miracles were not performed in the presence of an apostle. Philip's miracles, a whole city experiencing demons getting cast out, crazy people healed. Uh, uh, or, or crazy amounts of healings, Philip's uh, miracle ministry, not in the presence of an apostle. Uh, the church in Galatia, when Paul references in Galatians 3, the miracles performed among you, uh, he's just referencing miracles in their midst. Was there an apostle there? I mean, if so, it's an argument from silence. I really doubt there was a, uh, there was an apostle there. Uh, the, the book of Romans, Paul talks about prophecy and in uh, Romans chapter 12, and Paul had not been to Rome. An apostle that we know of, as far as like scholarship is concerned, they they suggest that uh, Rome was planted by missionaries, evangelists, and people just kind of traveling to Rome. No apostle founded the church. Paul, as an apostle, wanted to go to the church, but he's talking about prophecy already being active in the church, and he wants to go impart uh, a spiritual gift to them, but they already have gifts active. Um, when the, the fact uh, that he mentions prophecy, he doesn't just mention the use of the gift. He also mentions how it's to be used in accordance with faith. So the assumption is it's not just these traveling evangelists that were sent by the apostles, but it was the people of Corinth who were practicing these. I mean, people of, of Rome that were practicing these gifts, not just some unique people who planted the church that had hands laid on them by the apostles. So that, right. that, that again, showing that there's a number of people operating in that gift uh, and not just that gift, also tongues. Um, you, you've got a number of gifts li listed in First Corinthians twelve, or sorry, in Romans twelve, that would qualify as what the cessationists would call sign gifts, though we disagree with that term. Right. 
Yeah, First Timothy 4.14, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Uh, I don't see a mention of an apostle there. Um, the Corinthians are, uh, you mentioned the Corinthians earlier. Uh, Paul tells the Corinthians to pray for the gift of interpretation, to pray for an interpretation. Like if, you, if you're speaking in tongues and you don't have an interpretation, pray for it. He says in 1 Corinthians 14, I think it's verse 14. So there's no apostle around in that scenario. And so what this is, is the cessationists just imagining that the apostles had to be around. And I'm not saying every cessationist is this way, but at least this one uh, makes an argument that is demonstrably false. It is 100 tr- percent uh, untrue. And I think even cessationists watching this, be like, uh, yeah, he actually just got that one wrong. But it actually it just reflects a mentality that everything hinged upon the apostles and I think that's why he could say that, because that's the undergirding framework is everything hinged on the apostles. But a, a lot of miracle working ministry, um, I mean, yes, the gospel first went out from the apostles, but then it expanded well beyond that apostolic circle. And you guys tackled think, again, how... It, go ahead. Sorry, Josh, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, you guys you guys tackled the, again, that sola scriptura part that where in the scriptures do the scriptures say that you have to lay your hands on a person for that person to per- perform signs, wonders, and miracles. Because the case that keeps being asserted by the cessationist is that you must have an apostle lay hands on you in order for you to do this. They must endue you with some kind of power for signs, wonders, and miracles. However, this is an extra biblical case. I, I like this. You, you, you mentioned this earlier well, before and- the show, and I think you, you just mentioned it again about being commanded to pursue certain spiritual gifts that you don't have. Like in Ephesians, or 1 Corinthians 14, he tells the whole church, pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially you prophesy. But he doesn't say, wait for an apostle and then they'll lay your hands on you and then you'll get the gift of prophecy. He, he tells them all to pursue and desire. And then the ones who are speaking in tongues who can't interpret, he tells them to pray and ask God for an interpretation. So he why doesn't is he say, wait till I come around and that? lay hands on you. Yeah, he doesn't well, say, by, make by sure example, that you send forth James, who has the interpretation gift. By example, in Acts, I mean, you've got the entire uh, group of Gentiles that the Spirit gets poured out on them. Nobody lays hands on them. Uh, Peter's just simply preaching the same gospel that we're supposed to preach. The kingdom of God, the reign of God, forgiveness of sins can be found in Christ. Resurrection life can be found in Christ. Uh, and then the giving of the Spirit and the result for this group of, of uh, uh, Gentiles seems to be the kinds of gifts that cessationists would call sign gifts. Again, nobody laid hands on them, though. But then on top of that, if he's telling them, hey, uh, you, you guys who operate in the gift of tongues, pray that you can interpret. Pray for a gift that you don't have because you're not using this gift in a proper manner. There's people shouting out in tongues. There doesn't seem to be any any order. There's people who are uninformed about gifts and unbelievers that are in the audience, and it's freaking them out. So pray that you could interpret these tongues. And then he tells them how to do it in an orderly way, which is interesting because when he's correcting their misuse of the gifts, it also implies that gifts, real gifts, can be misused. So the character of a person is not determined by whether or not they have a gift. Uh, having a gift is just sovereignly decided by God, but they still are required to use that gift in a way that's God honoring and good and useful for the people there. And when it comes to the gift of interpretation, pray that you get this gift. But interpretation is a revelatory gift of the spirit. It would fall within that sign gift. And the other thing about it is you're never going to know if somebody has that gift unless somebody speaks in tongues. Um, 
and so what they're supposed to pray for that for what 10 years uh, that's it this is just a this is just a a practice only for this corinthian church and then it would die out pretty soon after that it makes no sense and again it's it's nullifying the word of god which is what the pharisees were accused by jesus of doing right. by their tradition and i think cessationism is a tradition of men that nullifies certain passages of scripture i don't think they nullify all of the word of god but specifically, when it has to do with the gifts of the Spirit, they nullify those scriptures. That's good. Are you guys ready to uh, move on to the next clip? Let's yeah. do it. Okay, so we did clip five. We did clip six. We are now moving on to clip seven, the cascade argument. We know that there is no apostle today roaming around planet Earth. So with that, the actual gifts that were associated with those apostles have likewise ceased. The gifts that authenticated the apostles, which were the sign gifts, particularly gifts of healing and miracles, and then the gifts that were associated with prophets, which were the revelatory gifts, which would have included tongues. A cessationist is one. That uh, clearly cut off prematurely. Uh, a cessationist, I have it in my notes. A cessationist is one who believes that those gifts ceased at the apostolic age with the death of the apostles of John around the year 100. Those gifts passed off the scene. Um, so those gifts have no passed scripture. off the scene around the year 100, guys. Uh, also, uh, healings and miracles, those are apostolic gifts, even though we don't have a Bible verse or category for that, uh, even though we have non-apostles praying for the sick and they're recovering, uh, even though uh, Paul tells the church in Galatia that many you know, mighty works and miracles are done among them, not by works of love, but hearing in faith. Um, you know, even though we don't have any Bible verse that says apostolic gifts are just healings and miracles. And, and, and because, you know, uh, we have a category uh, of Ephesians 2.20, which we've already, you know, uh, suggested is, uh, is fallacious, has nothing to do with the text of Ephesians 2.20 and scripture being written as that infallible foundation. We're going to say that apostles and prophets, these gifts and only these gifts uh, are going to cease, even though we don't have an explicit text of scripture that says that. Uh, I've already done a little bit of leading. We do have guys. a tradition that? that teaches that. <laughs> yeah, yes, we do. That? Yeah, we've got well, a tradition that teaches but, that, not a scripture. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, traditions develop over time, which is interesting because uh, cessationist or cessationism, it is a tradition, but it's not one that existed from the beginning. It took oh, hundreds of years for cessationism to pop onto the scene. Uh, so let's talk about a little bit about church history, because one of uh, one thing that we can definitely test uh, that he says in this quote is uh, is the idea that the the quote sign gifts we don't believe in that terminology and revelatory gifts uh, died out after the death of the last, last apostle around the year one hundred. Well, let's find out if that's really true. Uh, let's go to Justin Martyr, who came after that time period in the second century. In the second century, here's what Justin Martyr uh, said. He said, for the prophetical... Oh, he, 100 ahead. AD to 165 AD. It's just important to, to, to cite the dates here because they said it stopped around 100 AD. So here's right. Justin Martyr yeah. lived from 100 AD to 165 AD. Go ahead. Yep. The prophetical gifts remain with us, even to the present time. And hence, you ought to understand that the gifts formerly among your your nation have been transferred to us. So talking to Jews. Hey, now we Gentiles get it too. And just as there were false prophets contemporaneous with your holy prophets, so are there now many false teachers among us of whom the Lord forewarned us to beware. Therefore, we're more anxious that you be persuaded not to be misled by such persons, since we know that everyone who can speak the truth and yet speaks it not shall be judged 
by God. Uh, it says accordingly, he ascended on high, led captivity captives, he gave gifts to, to the sons of men. And again, in another prophecy, it is said, and it shall come to pass, I will pour out my spirit. So he's basically, he's quoting Ephesians 4 and Acts chapter 2 to defend continuationism. Those are two verses we've used to defend continuationism. And uh, he wants to defend continuationism in part because uh, the gifts are continuing with us, with him. The prophetical gifts remain with us. So I, uh, I would just ask the makers of this documentary, was Justin Martyr wrong? Was he, uh, was he lying? What, what exactly is happening here? Because he says the prophetic gifts remained in his church. Uh, was Justin Martyr dangerous? Like you consider us to be dangerous for believing that prophecy continues. Uh, most Christians consider Justin Martyr a hero in the faith. Uh, Irenaeus, does one of you guys want to read Irenaeus who came from, uh, so AD 125 to 200? Miller, you want to read that one? Sure. So Irenaeus says this, in like manner, we do also hear many brethren in the church who possess prophetic gifts and through the spirit speak all kinds of languages. Yeah. That is tongues. Uh, yes. Moreover, as I've said, the dead even have been raised up and remained among us for many years. Now, this is Irenaeus saying this. He's not saying, oh, this happened in scripture days. The days when the scriptures are being written, it it's happened today. And some of these people that were raised from the dead are actually with us. You can meet them. You can listen to their testimonies. The tough thing is, I imagine a cessationist would look at Irenaeus and go, "Yeah, well, we've got no medical documentation of these dead people being Dang. raised. Uh, we've got no video evidence of these dead people being raised. And Irenaeus must be incredibly dangerous to be teaching these things. Uh, my goodness." Uh, doesn't he know that he's endangering the sufficiency of Scripture? Yet, the Scriptures that teach these things should still be happening until the Lord returns. Yeah, Irenaeus writes against the heresies, writing against Gnostics, um, who are practicing spiritual gifts in a vain sort of imagination and visionary way. Uh, but Irenaeus doesn't go, well, we know obviously that these, these prophecies and these visions have ceased with the apostles. And that's his argument to push back against Gnosticism. Actually, it's not. His his argument is actually these things are still around today. We're still practicing them. They're still active in our presence. And these extremes over here are abuses and wrongs and heretical and erroneous because of the gospel that it proclaims. They're trying to get rid of Old Testament passages. They're trying to say that Jesus didn't come in the flesh and he's coming to fight these heresies while still maintaining true orthodoxy about uh, spiritual gifts. This is from Tertullian, AD 150 to 240. For seeing that we uh, we too acknowledge the spiritual charisma or gifts, we too have merit the attention of the gift uh, of the prophetic gift. And heaven knows how many uh, distinguished men, to say nothing of the common people, have been cured of devils and of their sicknesses. So once again, Tertullian, these are early church fathers who have fought for Orthodox Christian doctrine on Christology and the Trinity, and they fight to establish true historic Christian faith throughout the ages. Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, these aren't just like off-brand Christians. These are like the church fathers after the death of the apostles. This is uh, estimated between uh, 150 and 240, okay? This is almost 100 years after the apostles. What, what are we going to do with this? Uh, Michael, do you well, want to jump in and read another quotient? Well, I just say it's important to recognize, again, Tertullian is, what is he famous for? Well, he, fight, he fought off the Marcians. 
the ones who were denying, yeah. The, yeah, claiming that the God of the Old Testament was a different God. So he was trying to be theologically consistent, saying, no, the same God that worked miracles through Jesus and up until this day is the same God of the Old Testament. That is a message very much needed today to fight off neo-Marcionism. Um, just, just throwing that out there. Again, he is also considered one of the early church heroes of our faith. Absolutely. Okay. Um, well, here we are. I got switched screens. Okay. Uh, so Novation, uh, who was instrumental in the Novation controversy, what do we do with lapsed Christians in the event of persecution, was a huge voice in that scenario. Uh, he said, uh, this is he, the Holy Spirit, who places prophets in the church, instructs teachers, directs tongues, give powers and healings, does wonderful works, and arranges whatever gifts there are of the charismata, and thus making the Lord's church everywhere and in all perfected and completed. So Novation, rather than saying, hey, you know, these gifts endanger the church in some way, these church, these gifts endanger the sufficiency of scripture, he actually sees the purpose of the gift. First, he notes, like, notice the variety. It's, uh, it's prophecy, tongues, power, and healings. Like, Everything the cessationists don't like is what he says is going on in the third century. And he says the reason for this is that the Lord, the Lord's church is expanding everywhere and becoming more completed and perfected. That's straight out of Ephesians 4, where the church is building itself up in love. So why is cessationism dangerous? Because it takes away certain gifts of the Holy Spirit that Jesus gave for us to build the church up in love. I, I could build a home without tools, but it wouldn't be a very good home. Or if I had a limited tool belt, which would probably be more accurate, cessationists believe certainly in most of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but they deny many of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They're denying the tools for building the house of God. Novation addresses that directly, but most importantly, he says that all of these gifts continued here into the third century. Uh, Miller, why don't you tell tell us a little bit about Origin? Uh, sure Origin, yeah, Origin was you know later. Uh, he's a bag of mixed nuts. He is. He's a little <laughs> mixed. Yeah, he seemed to uh, to argue that people could uh, all people could eventually be redeemed. That kind of thing. That was a bad teaching. But he and well, he speculated. He never said this is the case, which I still yeah. disagree with his speculation. I don't think he should have speculated along those lines because that's like speculating right. on the judgment of God. Uh, however, regardless of whether he was uh, where he landed on those things, and I disagree with what he speculated about. I'm just going to say that again. I do not believe in universalism, and I think he was wrong to even go that direction or flirt with it. Um, however, it does give us an indication of what what the church believed about the gifts of the spirit in their day. So Origen was in AD 185 to 254, and he says this, some give evidence of their having received through this faith a marvelous power by the cures which they performed. This is speaking of a gift of healing, invoking no other over those who need their help than that of the God of all things, along with Jesus and a mention of his history. So when he says invoking, it's the same thing the Apostle Peter did when he says, hey, silver and gold have we none, but what we give you, we give you in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. That's what it means to invoke. And so here he is claiming that gifts of healing were still being being done uh, and performed by invoking Jesus for these cures to be accomplished. So again, while Origen mixed bag, flirted with some heretical stuff, 
he is still considered an early church father and one whom would have a representation of what the early church at least believed in his day. I, I want to be clear, uh, when, you, when you say early church father, it depends on what source you're going to pull from. Um, I'm pretty sure this is Origen. Uh, I know that Origen disciples Arius, and Arius takes his doctrines further than Origen would have, and Arius is a known, Arius is a known heretic. I'm pretty sure Origen is not considered a church father because they like dug up his bones and like reburned them. That's the part that I'm not... 100 percent sure on yeah sure yeah so should he be deemed a heretic which they uh, they did deem him later yeah centuries later so you're saying right, so, is he a right. church father at the time he was considered a church father today he's not considered a church father however exactly. to michael's point we are not quoting um individuals and saying that we endorse all of their doctrine what we're saying is there are individuals who were leading the church and they can be a representation of what was believed and practiced in that day. Well, um, again, this was origin definitely... in 185 to 254, 250 years after, or 150 years after the, the supposed date of the ending of these supernatural miracles. We, we are yeah. endorsing, just to be clear, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Novation. We're just not endorsing Origen. <laughs> Correct. Really just we we acknowledge it. that there's a little bit of uh, little bit of sliminess around that name, and we want to go out of our way to make that case. Also, one of the names that they go out of their way to say in this documentary was cessationist, is again, a little bit disingenuous, uh, a man by the name of Augustine. Uh, he was either a fully ignorant father. or disingenuous. It's either fully it, ignorant or I'm, disingenuous. I'm, yes. guessing they, I'm guessing they were unaware. But what we're yeah, you, we'll show some charity. I'm gonna no, well, the, the, the you, you should always just, you should always assume ignorance rather than malice if ignorance as an excuse will do, right? Um, so uh, in book 22 in the City of God, it is true that Augustine early on has quotations of being a cessationist and believing these things have ceased. However, towards the end of his life, we have longer citations. I'll quote one that's very sm small in, in book 22 of the City of God. He goes out of his way to say that he has so many miracles, more than he can count, uh, that he's compiled up. He says, I am so pressed by the promise of the finished work that I cannot record all the miracles that I know. That would be one small quotation, uh, but many more on his healing and experience of healing. This is something that gets perpetrated and, and propagated within the strange fire books and the John MacArthur camps. They say Augustine was a cessationist. But if you actually go and read that source material for yourself, you'll see that later, at a later time, he kind of came to his senses as he was seeing supernatural activity of God taking place all around him. More quotes on that in a future video when it comes up that Augustine was a cessationist because we, we want to make sure that we have plenty of quotes from him saying otherwise. Uh, Michael, do you want to close us out on this clip from that quote from D.A. Carson? Oh, sure. And I'll, and I'll say, too, at the time, uh, Ambrose, who greatly influenced Augustine, believed in the gift of tongues. And, uh, and so Augustine started out cessationist, but then, like as you said, he came around and talks about resurrection from the dead and blindness, had uh, 70 miracles recorded in a two-year span in uh, in his uh, diocese, and there just wasn't time to record them all. So, uh, but yeah, let's go ahead and um, and read this quote from D. A. Carson because we've only gone through the first uh, the first few centuries of church history, uh, reaching the point of Augustine, but we could keep going. D. A. Carson says this. He says there's enough evidence that some form of charismatic gift continued sporadically across the centuries of church history that it is futile to insist on doctrinal grounds that every report is spurious or the fruit of demonic activity or psychological aberration. 
in other words, you can't claim that it's just like false or made up. You can't claim that this is all demons. You can't claim that this is some sort of psychological phenomenon, mind tricks, placebo effects, those kind of things. D.A. Carson says, who is a pillar in the reformed community, says there's just enough. Uh, you can't deny all the evidence. If you want to deny a claim here or there, sure. You can't deny it all. And so I, I would just want to appeal to the makers of the cessationist documentary. Um, what do you do with this? What do you do with centuries of church history from church fathers who are saying these things happened? Are you saying they were wrong? Are you saying it was a big old placebo effect? Uh, or are you saying that it was demonic? Like, which of these is it? Because we're going to go with the mountains of evidence of miracles, signs, wonders, prophetic phenomenon, tongues, and everything we see in the New Testament that continues for hundreds of years. I'm going to go ahead and say the church fathers were accurately reporting what happened. And I think that's the safest bet, given the number of testimonies you who are viewing will let you decide. And we're only uh, making Miller the Josh, argument yeah, from church history because they are bringing up the argument from church history. We're happy to just text, stay with the text of scripture, like 1 Corinthians 1, 7, which is so that you would not lack in any spiritual gift and eagerly await, uh, as you eagerly await the revelation of Christ. So we want you to bound in spiritual gifts until Christ appears, or 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 8 through 12, where he talks about, you know, tongues will cease and prophecies cease and all these things, uh, these revelatory gifts, they're going to cease when? When Christ appears, or Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 13, that says, that were built up uh, to the full stature of maturity and love and knowledge until we reach the full uh, stature and maturity of Christ Jesus. That has not happened. When he appears, we'll be like him. These are three different timestamps that are saying that these gifts will continue until that day that Christ appears. So we're happy to stick with just the text of Scripture. However, the argument was brought up by the cessationist documentary that these things should have ended around the year 100. Now, in a later part of the documentary, someone is going to bring up once again uh, that, that basically after the year 400, uh, that, you know, we don't really have a record in the, the de facto position between the year 400 and basically the Protestant Reformation uh, is that of cessationism. We will address that in a letter clip because that is also an erroneous statement that cannot be supported with scripture or history. Um, but I think without further ado, we've probably come to the close of this clip. Are you guys ready to play another clip? Yeah. Hey, and and maybe we should just, we probably have to do this every single episode, but every single episode we do on cessationism, someone says, cessationists still believe in miracles. We know that they still believe that miracles can occasionally happen. We know that. We've, we've said that so many times, okay? So we are not claiming that cessationists claim all miracles have ceased. But in these quotes from the church fathers, they're talking about the sign gifts. They're talking about the, quote, prophetical gifts. They're talking about tongues. They're not just talking about one-off rando miracles. They're talking about the ongoing charismata, the, the gifts of the Spirit in their full-fledged manifestation in the church. And all cessationists claim, by definition, that those have ceased. So, uh, okay, with that said, yeah, let's uh, move to the next clip. There is no mention in the second half of the first century of signs and wonders and miracles once you pass the book of 1 Corinthians. There is no more mention of any miracles being performed by any apostle. He writes nine letters to different churches, six different churches after 1 Corinthians. You look at the pastoral epistles written for the ongoing life of the church. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, instructing pastors how to conduct life in the church. And there's no mention of the miraculous gifts. 
you have this lessening of the miraculous as the canon of scripture moves toward its completion. You have in Acts, for example, Paul would send pieces of fabric out. People would be healed by that. That's not happening anymore. And it wasn't happening in Paul's time either, because when he learned that Timothy had a stomach ailment, he writes to him and says, take a little wine for your stomach. So he doesn't send him a handkerchief. This one's not going to be hard, guys. I'll be honest. That graph is so disingenuous and causes my blood to boil. But then also, Josh, just not it could true. be ignorance. And it could just be not, ignorance. I know. I know. But like, I have such a hard time. Like, I like Steve Lawson. I do. Like, I have a hard time when Steve Lawson says things like there's no mention of any supernatural gift after First Corinthians. I'm like, my guy, like, just just jump in Blue Letter Bible and type in prophecy and, and see that that's not true before you say it on a documentary. Like, I like Steve. Steve, I like you. I think you're a good Bible teacher. I like the things that you have to say. But man, it it's frustrating when I hear guys say stuff like that. Yeah, 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 totally. And it it absolutely. And if we and if we talk this way, like, well, there's this gradual depletion of the gifts as uh time went on until the completion of scripture. Uh and we we see less miracles, and you know, by the end of Paul's ministry, he's saying, take a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent illnesses and so on. So there's this sort of dying out. Again, no scripture says this. This is uh an observation. That's actually an untrue observation. We've been over this end of, I mean, end of the book of Acts, Acts 28, uh, you know, Paul's healing people left and right, and he's on his way to be martyred. So uh, a whole island of people. And gosh, we could we could go over multiple instances here. We could go um, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 22, uh, which was written uh, after 1 Corinthians uh, was. So it talks about not despising prophecy. Second Thessalonians 2.15, uh, it reaffirms all the teaching in the first letter, which included teaching about prophecy. Romans, which was written in 55 to 57 AD, Paul talks about imparting certain spiritual gifts. Uh, most importantly, he mentions prophecy in Romans 12. Uh, so that comes after First uh, Corinthians. And, um, and then Second Corinthians... Paul speaks about his <laughs> his trip to heaven, so he's caught up into the third heaven. Uh, Acts 28, I just mentioned, that would have been pegged around AD 59 to 60. We talked a lot about Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. Uh, we have, that was written from about AD 60 to 62. There's still apostles and prophets around. And Colossians also written around AD 60 to 62. Uh, he's warning about angels, visions, and dreams of false teacher, but he never states that these miraculous encounters are illegitimate because the gifts have ceased. Uh, he just says, don't believe these guys because they're no bueno, um, <laughs> uh, because they're not Christ-centered. They've lost touch with the head. First Peter 4.10, uh, uh, we have another mentioned. That's AD 62 to 68, somewhere in there. Second Peter uh, 3.2 mentions it again. First Timothy 1.18, wage war in accordance with the prophecy made about you. So this one is uh, fascinating and important. Sam Storms, who preached in my church uh, a few weeks ago, uh, right after we did the Remnant Conference, that Sunday morning, Sam spoke, and he preached on this passage. And the passage, Paul's exhorting Timothy, like, your perseverance in the faith depends on you waging war in accordance with the prophecies made about you. So we need prophecy to persevere in the faith. Now, I'm not suggesting that if somebody didn't have prophecy in their life, that it'd be impossible for them. It was definitely true for Timothy 
that he needed to wage war in accordance with these prophecies. And by way of application, we can say like, hey, this is true of believers. We need the full expression of the spiritual gifts, including prophecy, in order to, uh, in order to persevere to the greatest degree uh, possible. First uh, Timothy 4.14 also, uh, also mentions prophecy. Uh, all of that is written 64, 65 AD. Second Timothy, even later, uh, mentions the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Um, maybe what was the last prophecy. book of the Bible, Michael? What was that last one? <laughs> that's where I'm headed. The last book of the Bible, Josh, is Revelation. And the whole book is a prophecy. It's <laughs> so frustrating. It's like there's no mention of prophecy after First Corinthians. The last book of the Bible is a giant prophecy. Are you kidding yeah. me? Like how yeah. you, it's so disingenuous to push that kind of of teaching. Uh, I, also, I don't want to say disingenuous. I don't want to say disingenuous. Are you going to say Steve Lawson doesn't know the Book of Revelation is a prophecy? I I'm going to say. Someone going to say that to me? Someone going to say it to my say it to my face, Michael? Again, say I, it to my face. <laughs> Listen, I, I think that it's culture. I think that when when you're surrounded by all people who believe exactly like you uh, on this issue, you're not going to really challenge yourself to think outside of that. And you're just going to say some erroneous things. And uh, and so I think that's what happened. I mean, I just know well, Lawson is smart and I and I'm sure he's a good guy. But let me, let me but address yes, that is dis, this demonstrably false. Now, what would you yeah. guys say on on Revelation? What would you guys say if Lawson replied, "Okay, okay, yes, I misspoke about that," um, but Revelation was written by an apostle, and uh, and really, that's the crux of the argument that this stuff only lasted for the life of the apostles. And hey, apostles were around for all of those verses that you read because Paul was an apostle and he wrote most of them. What would you guys say to that? Well, yeah, I would say that in this argument. The you see, there's different arguments that they're making. Some are saying it's the death of the apostle. Some will say it's the close of the canon. Some will say it's cascading and that when the apostles die, then the gifts begin to to pass out. They're going to give different time markers on when this stuff is going to pass out. But the argument that but was they won't just give any made, scripture. <laughs> correct, it, no scripture. The argument was just made was after First Corinthians, we begin to see a dying down or a dying That's off right. of those spiritual gifts. However, they're, they're using what is called an argument from silence because it's not mentioned. Therefore, it must not be it must not be happening today. However, the last mention of communion takes place in First Corinthians. So should we stop practicing communion because it's no longer mentioned? Well, no, you know, they make the case that, well, you know, at the end, you know, Phil Johnson goes, you know, at the, at the end of Paul's ministry, he's not sending uh, Timothy a handkerchief for his healing. Well, we actually make the same argument that healing is not a gift that can be done on command by the apostles. Oh. In Galatians, the very first time that Paul goes to the church of Galatia, uh, he says that he comes to them with an infirmity. I believe it's Galatians chapter three. He comes to them with some kind of infirmity, and yet they still received him, even though he had that infirmity. At the end of Paul's life, he heals the entire island of Malta. God uses him to heal the entire island. Right. That can be found in Acts chapter 28. So the beginning so the of the inverse, the, the the inverse of what true. they're saying is true. So they're saying Correct. the end of the life, less miracles, beginning of the life, more miracles. And you're saying, well, beginning of life and infirmity is why we even have the letter to Galatia. End of the life, he's healing a whole island of folk. And then after that, I mean, if you're going through the book of Acts, I mean, from Acts, like, 21 on Paul's in prison. How many miracles are you performing while in prison? I mean, it, it, so it's just the, the storyline shifts before that he's playing churches doing miracles left and right. But even so the letters that he's writing still mention prophecy, still mention the so-called signed gifts over and over and over again, just as we read. So, so there's, there's also so you're right, Josh, it's 
yeah, jo- the the argument in this case was the cascade argument. The argument in this case was that the miracles were dying off. And we're saying that is demonstrably false. The miracles were not dying off. There's no, uh, there's no evidence of that whatsoever. And the claim that first Corinthians was like the last mention of it is definitely also false. And so how, how much of the argumentation can you take to be true? If the premise that they start out, like, can you take the conclusion to be true when the premise they use to prove the conclusion is very obviously untrue? The answer is the conclusion is therefore also untrue. Correct. The, the Miller, you even want to jump in there. Like, this. Toss it over. Yeah. Well, so they're making, again, he's making a mistake that they made in the last uh, episode we did, the last response video we did about uh, how the miraculous gifts work, how healings work. They assume, again, that a person with a gift of healing heals on command like a superpower in a Marvel movie, uh, which, again, is not the case. The very fact that Paul wasn't able to heal Timothy is indication that it wasn't up to Paul who got healed, when they got healed, or how they got healed. The only thing Paul was determined to do was follow the leadings of the Holy Spirit, and those gifts would be operative when the Holy Spirit decides to manifest them. Um, and I, I mentioned this because he mentions the handkerchief thing. Like, why didn't he send uh, Timothy a hanky? Well, first off, Paul was not the one making those hankies go to everybody. Uh, and it was a sweat cloth. When it says handkerchief, it's literally talking about the thing that Paul would use in the Middle East to wipe the sweat from his brow. And he's also failing to recognize the context that was taking place in Acts 19 when this is mentioned. And I I think this is super important because you hear this argument all the time. I've even even seen it in the chat section in today's episode where people are saying, well, look, if people are still, if these gifts are still working today, why is nobody sending Yankees like Paul? Okay, we've got to look at Acts 19 to get some context here. What was taking place in Ephesus? Well, in Ephesus, they were known for taking amulets, precious gemstones, and using them and calling upon their gods to heal people. And so what does the Apostle Paul do? Well, what God is doing through a Paul is showing that he is far greater than the gods of Ephesus. They have Amen. to get these precious gemstones. God can use the least of the apostles and use the sweat cloth to bring healing. This is polemic in nature. There's a bigger context going on, and it has far more to do with Jesus showing him himself to be sovereign and supreme over the gods of the Ephesians. So when would a sweat cloth be appropriate today? Same thing. You go to certain places uh, where they have amulets they use to heal people, and you'll see these kinds of miracles happen where God is, again, showing himself to be greater than their gods. So that's Which happens probably in, in why Exodus. Paul didn't send that to Timothy. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and that's what happens in Exodus. We see polemical acts of God dethroning the kinds of principalities or worshiped spirits in those days, in those eras. So the, 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 the plague matches the deity in which they're bringing destruction over. Um, but Michael likes to quote this verse a lot, uh, Roundtree, in Acts 4, 29 through 30, because I can't memorize it on the spot. And Jack Deere would say, I, I don't have any theology because I can't it. do it on the spot. Uh, I'm going I'm to read it, okay? Uh, it says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word of boldness while stretching out your hand to heal through signs, wonders, and to perform through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So, in this account, we have the apostles praying that God would stretch forth his hand and perform signs through the apostles. Why are they praying for it if they can do it on command? Oh, like why? yeah, they're superheroes, right? They have why the power are they to saying, heal. 
please continue to do this, Lord, through us in this ministry. After we've, you know, uh, stretched forth our hand, you know, silver and gold, I do not have this one thing, rise and walk in the name of Jesus. The lame man becomes, you know, unlame. He's able to walk, right? And, and, and the apostles are going, hey, Lord, would you keep doing this? Why? Like, if, if they can do this on command, why are they asking God for help to continue doing this on command? It's because they can't. It's the same reason that Paul has an infirmity at the uh, beginning of his ministry. At the end of his ministry, heals a whole island. And throughout his ministry, leaves Trophimus at Miletus sick, Epaphras is on his deathbed before God raised him up. But, but over and over again, God is the one performing miracles by his sovereignty. And, and again, I understand, I understand why the cessationist community is is pushing so hard against this is because most charismatics, many charismatics remove divine agency from this conversation. There are these hyper charismatic leaders who slap people with coats that that believe that they have the gift of healing that they can exercise on command. Uh, I would say in the same way that Westboro Baptist is not representative of all cessationists, guys slapping each other with coats isn't representative of all charismatics. We don't all believe what a few hyper fixated, you know, word of faith healers are preaching and teaching. Our, our doctrine is representative, I think, of what is represented in Scripture. God is sovereign. We are participating with his divine agency and his divine act in the earth, and, and he determines how these gifts are uh, uh, distributed and administered within his body. So yeah. uh, any other thoughts on this yeah, clip before I, we move on I, to something else, guys? I do. Yeah, I have a thought. So, you know, just a question of like, you know, why aren't continuationists cleaning out hospitals? And why aren't you just healing everybody everywhere you go? And why aren't you sending your hankies like Paul did? And, you know, and like, well, it's because, you know, the gifts cease. And that's why you can't do that. That's that's the implication of the argument. But I would say not even Jesus healed at will like that. Not even Jesus. And a couple of examples, Mark chapter six, Jesus could not do many miracles in his hometown. Why? because of their unbelief. Jesus had the faith, but they didn't. What does that tell us? It tells us that environment matters. And this is where cessationism is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Cessationism says, God doesn't do the stuff. See, he didn't do the stuff. And it's like, well, what if he didn't do the stuff because you don't believe he'll do the stuff? Faith is actually a big part of it. And it, what if like, Everyone in America started believing God did the stuff and was passionately in pursuit of Jesus. I bet we'd see more stuff. And uh, I think that in the third world where they're like having to rely on God for miracles and they don't have scholars telling them that God doesn't do the stuff anymore, that God doesn't give these kinds of gifts anymore, and they're seeing it like crazy and it's documented, uh, I would bet that faith is a big component of that. It was a big component in Jesus' life. It's a big component today. The other thing I would say about Jesus' ministry, Luke 5, 17, it says that, uh, that Jesus saw that the power of the Lord was present to heal. Why does Luke, the narrator, say that? Why does he say it if the power of the Lord was always present to heal? Well, because it wasn't always present to heal. Jesus only did what he saw the Father doing. There was a power for healing in that moment. Jack, to illustrate this point, Jack Deere tells a story in his book, uh, Surprised by the Spirit, now called Still Surprised because he's rewritten it, uh, tells the story about Ann Roberts, who was blind and in a wheelchair and got up out of her wheelchair and he went and visited her uh, years and years later. She's still like walking around, not blind. And uh, and he talks, tells a story. It's, it's really kind of funny the way he tells a story. You should buy the book. But healing is breaking out just like all over the room. 
And he says, this was just one of those moments where it was just like the power of the Lord was present to heal. Ken Fish will say the same thing. Ken Fish will say, you know, there are some times when I have been in a room where uh, I think he calls it like 100 by 100. 100% of the people are 100% healed. He's, and he's described to me several times that's happened. It doesn't always happen that way. And, uh, and we see sometimes where, uh, you know, Matthew 4 and Matthew 12, uh, Jesus healed them all. Uh, but then we see other occasions like in John 5 where Jesus heals one dude. Well, we as charismatics are affirming God is sovereign and, and he determines. And, and, so, uh, and so I would also say that just to push back on this uh, false notion that charismatics believe healing is at will. We've, we don't believe that. The only ones who do are the, are the jacket slappers that Josh was talking about. That reminds me of Veggie Tales. Do you remember the fish slappers? The fish slappers, they're the worst. Philistines? Sorry. Okay. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't are we ready that. to move on to clip nine? Because, uh, I mean, you mentioned in this episode, Michael, why, you know, Jesus, you know, isn't doing these miracles on command. And we actually have, we cited them all last week, all these verses of why there aren't miracles being done in certain times in Israel. And it's because of their unrepentant, hardened hearts, their sinfulness that prevents these activities from happening. You know, I, we quoted Micah 3. We quoted First Samuel I think it's chapter three, where the word of the Lord is as is, is infrequent in those days, and it seems as if all of these judgments, Micah three, um, the, the, there was a Psalm that we were quoting. I forget all the, the Psalm seventy four. It was in yes, Psalm seventy four. All these verses from last week's show notes, where it talks about how 3, the miracles and prophecies aren't taking place in these people's days because of sin and hardness of sin and rebellion against God. So again, I, I just want to say that for the individual who's saying, well, you know, there's these ebbs and flows of miracles that take place in the Bible. Wouldn't it be better if we took like biblical examples for why healings and miracles weren't being done and then made you know, explanations for why certain activities weren't taking place in the early church, rather than reading something into the text that the text doesn't say that the gifts died out. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. It just says that this person was left in, in, in Miletus sick. It doesn't say why Trophimus was left. It just says he left him, right? So like, instead of reading into the text certain things, why don't we just assume that there are other biblical reasons, such as God's sovereignty, God's will, God's power, uh, the, the sinfulness of, of men, uh, unrepentant, rebellious hearts. Why can't we just take other of the various examples given in scripture for why spontaneous miracles and prophetic utterances don't take place? Why don't we just take those as the default interpretation and examples for why things don't happen rather than just inventing a doctrine and reading it into the text of scripture? I think that's uh wildly um well just unfaithful to the text of scripture i don't think it's helpful anyway guys uh we are 15 minutes before we need to wrap up probably 13 minutes before we have to wrap up do you, where do you guys want to do you want to land the plane right now do you want to watch clip nine clip nine is hebrews 2 2 through 5 i'm sorry hebrews 2 2 through 3 i don't know if we can do that in 13 minutes what do you think miller shaking his head no way no way what do you think Roundtree? what do you want to do miller says no let's do what miller says Okay, sounds good. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Remnant Radio. We have a playlist going. I don't know if you noticed. It is a playlist responding to cessationism. Uh, today, we have left off on clip number eight, which means we are 14, no, 15 minutes and 15 seconds into the two-hour and 
uh, a 30 minute documentary called cessationism next week we'll pick up at the 15 minute and 42 second mark and we will slowly but surely make our way through the cessationist documentary because there's just so much that needs to be addressed and corrected and confronted uh because the use of church history the use of scripture and the root, uh, the, the the use of eisegesis of reading theology into the text is just rampant in this documentary. Love the guys that made it. Seem to make a great quality film. Trying to uh, you know be faithful to proclaim truth, but again, it just seems like they're in an echo chamber, not able to you know, uh, engage with continuationist arguments. So if you're out there, you're a cessationist, you're like, wow, these arguments seem different to me. Where are they getting all this stuff from? Are they just making this stuff up? No, actually, a lot of our scholars have been saying this stuff for a long time. Dr. Sam Storms, D.A. Carson, Craig Keener, Wayne Grudem, we'd encourage you, go check out the better side of the charismatic movement when it comes to doctrine. We have scholars, guys, and you can go check out their writings, check out their doctrine. There's actually orthodox, faithful way to pursue the gifts uh, passionately as the scripture commands us, but also in a decent and order way. So uh, if you're out there and you're watching and you want to support the Ministry of Remnant Radio, we would encourage you to uh, check out the links in the description. You give a one-time gift on PayPal or a reoccurring giver there on Patreon. If you want our show notes, we would encourage you to sign up for the newsletter because we will be sending out these show notes. Uh, I'm not exactly sure when we're going to be sending them out because this is going to be a very long documentary, but I encourage you to uh, jump onto uh, the, the newsletter so that when we get the commentary of this documentary out, you can get the notes uh, for the show notes. If you're pastor, preacher, teacher, and you want to go through these notes, we want to encourage you to pick those up. Uh, without further ado, we'll see you next Monday, Tuesday, not Tuesday, Monday, Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. Central Standard Time. We'll see you guys then. Blessings. I want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek in Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.